Good evening. Welcome to the first instalment of Goodbye Forever by Nakjang Rinpoche. We'll be reading uh, an excerpt each evening. And we're starting from the beginning with chapter one. Chapter one, part one. The White Lady, 1952 to 1957. Born 6th of June, 1952, in Hannover, Germany. Moved to Frognall, Aldershot, Hampshire, England, in 1953, and thence Farnham, Surrey, in 1954. What follows in italics may not make linear sense in terms of death and birth, but I shall describe how it was in 1952, although the calendar year only came into the picture in unfathomable incremental phases. White, terrifying white, howling cacophonous white, white shining from the height of plummeting sky, white hurtling through absolute zero at terminal velocity, white noise, white silence, white before space, before dimensionality, white before temporal continuity, white before name and form, before cognition, comparison or interpretation. Then black, utter black. Inchoate velocity in which black and white have the same meaning. Then dawn, spectral spacious heart of phenomena, swirling blue, green, red, white, yellow, colour names that are distant approximations. The terrible white then seemed long distant. Ubiquitous joyous luminosity pervaded sense fields. Colour swirlings developing cohesive density intricacy of texture and a quasi-perfection of pattern that gave birth to amorphous memory. Then sound, visceral tintintabulatory pulses, nascent corporeal narrative coagulating in a ruby sea, crimson and carmine pulsing with alternations and momentarily miraculous affiliations. Then all faded into the mnemonics of memory, to be replaced by an infant quotidian kaleidoscope of bemusing gestures. That is the only memory that remains of death and incarnation. I was told by Kyabje Dujam Rinpoche, 19 years later, that my predecessor, Aro Yeshe, had died in an avalanche. This brought the sensory impressions of my infancy into focus. 
time in first few years of life is vague. Time towards the end of life is vague. What occurs between birth and death isn't always as clear as might be wished. The theatrical stage of physical existence hosts a surreal drama in which scenes suddenly segue. Players enter, sometimes simply to exit, stage left or stage right, either to re-enter or not. I never said goodbye forever. There was no need. The world enunciated the phrase on my behalf. Whenever anything became too comfortable, reliable, dependable, consistent or coherent. Everything historical is equivocal, unless there is non-dual awareness. The alternative might be an ever-present, non-partisan biographer, capable of synthesising a narrative from the welter of impressions and erratic subjectivism that constitutes life. I do not have access to such a biographer. I do not rest continually in the non-dual state. I can therefore only attempt to recall the sequences that still emerge when I cast my erratic temporal attention backwards. At first, it's like trying to rewind a cassette tape which has accumulated too many ridges. The rate of rewind fluctuates erratically between fast and slow and occasionally jams. Sometimes you can get lucky and the tape frees itself, accelerates, and you find yourself rewinding as a lover sighing like a furnace with a woeful ballad made to his mistress's eyebrow. Then as a whining schoolboy with his satchel and shining morning face, creeping like a snail unwillingly to school. Then as an infant, mewling and puking in the nurse's arms. I cannot say at what age I first named her the White Lady, apart from the fact that I must have been able to articulate words. The White Lady, however, had always been there. She had been there between observation and inattention between sensation and emotion, between darkness and light, and between the infinite shades of dawn and dusk. I may as well say she was born with me, or that I was born into her presence. I often gazed as a young boy, especially at dusk, attempting to catch the moments when a greater shade settled. It was almost as if I could catch one of those moments if I gazed with sufficient stillness 
It seemed that if I had ideas in my mind, they would cause me to miss the moment when the world darkened by a fraction. I sat and stared enough to know that the dimming of the day was not gradual, but that the steps almost always occurred during moments of inattention. The white lady almost always appeared in my room at night. She appeared unless I was so tired that I fell asleep immediately. I did not know it wasn't normal to have ladies appearing in one's room at night. She was simply part of my life as an infant in arms and thereafter. Of course, I was said to be prone to see what may or may not have been there to be seen. I didn't know, as an infant, what the boundaries of quotidian reality were. That is normal, of course, for an infant. But I would appear to have taken my infant's imaginal world further than, the, and than allowed by those with a proper sense of English decorum. According to my own perception, however, I hadn't taken anything anywhere. It had taken me. I was not creating my world. The world was creating me. That I was abnormal, or something like it, was what I was given to believe by my father. He was the arbiter of appropriateness, custodian of the customary and curator of the conventional. He meant well by it, of course. He meant no harm. He was born in 1902 and was simply an elderly Edwardian. There were rules of reality imposed by the adult world which clashed with my experience. This proved increasingly disturbing to my father. It also became disturbing to my mother, but only to the extent that she had to deal with my elderly father's Edwardian English empiricism. So I lived in a world apart from the conservative 1950s of my father before the age of five. I then lived in a world apart for as long as I could get away with it. My mother wasn't given two visions, but neither was she disturbed by the fact that they occurred. She'd had her own unusual visionary experiences, but she never made an esoteric hobby out of them. She hardly ever talked about them. But she knew enough to know that there were more things in heaven and earth than were rationalised in her husband's philosophy. The fact that my imagination, daydreams, dreams and visions intermingled seamlessly did not seem disastrous to her. But to my father, it was the precursor 
to mental hospital admission. The white lady often appeared in my room and remained for varying periods of time, depending on my degree of tiredness. The words appeared and remained are only partial indications, as what occurred is difficult to relate in terms of conventional reality. When she appeared, it was more that I suddenly became aware she was there. Then she remained, but I was never aware of her departure. Her appearances could not be codified in terms of time because several hours or a fraction of a second could not be differentiated. At the time, it was simply part of the fabric of experience and only became incomprehensible when I tried to explain it to my mother. The white lady came in dreams as well and on rare occasions in daytime reveries when I was on my own in the woods. Although I called her the White Lady, she was not actually white. White was simply the closest I could come to describing her. She was actually every colour there ever was, or ever would be, but somehow that only made sense as white. Later, when I was at junior school, I learned that every colour comes from white light. The teacher demonstrated this with a prism, and I was amazed looking at the pure rainbow colour on the white wall. As soon as I saw that prismatic display, I knew what it meant. White was all colours. The white lady had that ability to be all colours, but as a person rather than as a glass prison. My mother told me, once I was able to tell her about the experience, that the white lady was a dream. That seemed peculiar to me, because I'd seen her quite clearly when I was lying awake in the dark. She didn't seem like a dream.